Hello, my name's Simon Rafe. I'm here with Kia Radnidge at the Global Sports Conversations uh, SOAS podcast series. And um, we're going to talk a little bit more about sport and diplomacy this afternoon. So, Kia, perhaps you'd like to tell you a little bit about how you come to be talking to me this afternoon and your interest in sport and diplomacy. Well, I suppose this is going back a very, very long way to uh, one day as a little boy when I walked out and went to a football match. And uh, everything sort of progressed from there. I came from a family that was very interested in sport, played local amateur sport. And uh, what I wanted to be was what I became, which was uh, a sports reporter. And so I worked my way up through local newspapers, regional newspapers, national newspapers, Daily Mail, Guardian, and so on. And then, uh, you know, what happened then was that the world of the internet arrived. And so, uh, I, you know, I tried to move on with that. While all the time, one of the, the main cause of my work has been writing for World Soccer magazine. Ever since the, the early days of the magazine in the 1960s, when we were actually telling people something new about even what was happening in Europe in football. Um, of course, then it branched out. People started to see European football on cable channels and so on. So you were then telling them about Africa. The more you tell people about sports in the world, the more you realise how much connection there is that sport does not exist as an island. Sport is connected. It's connected with business. It's connected with finance. It's connected with politics. And uh, so over time, I then became involved in covering the Olympic movement and which is very political. And so I sort of graduated, if you like, from covering, you know, Fred Bloggs kicking off with a rush to uh, Thomas Bach opening the uh, whatever session of the International Olympic Committee. So, so if you like, my, my speciality moved on then to uh, sport and football, particularly, obviously, in, um, in the world and in politics and in business. And, and so... You know, I suppose I followed really or went with the trend of sports reporting, which obviously is now uh, significantly involved in telling not only the story of what happens on the pitch, on the court, on the course, or basically who makes it happen, why they make it happen, the politics of making it happen, why it happens, where it does, who provides the money, where the finance comes from. And uh, maybe one day, you know, we, we can uh, posit an idea about where it's going to go. But, that, you know, that's um, guesswork, really. OK, well, thanks very much. But a couple of things I'd like to pick up on there. One was the sort of evolution of the medium with which you've worked um, during your time as a journalism. So for, as a journalist, forgive me. So from, you know, traditional print media through the Internet and indeed the development of the uh, genre to not just be the report from the match, you know, so-and-so scored or so-and-so won the race, but to providing some of the contextual detail and what you think that's added to the uh, stories, it were, the narrative that you've set. Well, I think in terms of going behind the scenes and, and providing the context, that's added immeasurably. And I think that's helped to educate uh, the sporting public if you like, I, th I think people are much more knowledgeable, if they wish to be, about how sport is run and their opinions of the people who are running it, um, which, which are usually pretty negative, as it happens. Um, I think one of the interesting things is that um, a lot of the different World Cups I reported on, the technology we used to report were different. For example, yes, back in, I don't know, the 60s, early 70s, it was 
print and it was phoning your story back to wherever you were phoning it to, if you got a line. Um, 1978 in Argentina was the first one where I think I used Telex. Uh, 1982 in Spain was Fax. Um, then going on Mexico and I think the first um, international tournament which really got into the use of the internet was the United States in the World Cup in 1994 and we used these uh, little plastic, they were called tandy machines and uh, they were very flimsy so that during the final um, which was very hot in Pasadena they started to melt and buckle and the secret service personnel had to run downstairs and cut up boxes to use as covers for the poor old journalists who were sort of melting with their machines. And of course, well, everybody knows and can see, you know, what's happening in social media today and, and how it's evolved. One of the things that I've done, I'm chairman of the Football Commission of AIPS, the International Sports Rises Association. We have a debrief usually with FIFA, UEFA after a tournament and... Uh, what we usually do is sit around a table and say, well, whatever is going to happen in four years' time, there is going to be a technological development for the dissemination of, uh, of the news and the sport and the coverage that we don't know about at this point. Um, so it, it's a very exciting time to be a, a journalist as, as long as you're ready to uh, you know, not be hidebound in the old traditions, as long as you're ready to, to adapt. And so beyond your, your crystal ball gazing about that next uh, technological uh, leap, is there something that um, you know you perhaps reflect on in terms of the power structures that have you've seen at play, be they in international sporting federations, um, within the sort of media dimension, within the technology, or indeed which isn't just the sport itself? Where does the power lie, do you think? I think one of the interesting things that's happened is that with the general access that everybody has to what we call, we call it modern technology, it's technology. I mean, it's, um, you know, uh, paper and print was old technology and today we have what we have, is that sporting federations have taken their media operations in-house. They're no longer dependent on uh, a quote, you know, going out from the chairman or whatever after a meeting they actually shape the events, shape the stories. I mean, you only had to look at what's happened recently with the Manchester City fly-on-the-wall uh, documentary to, as, a, as a prime example of how sport itself and sports, not sport itself, sporting governing bodies are trying to shape the story to suit their own uh, agendas, present themselves in a good light. And uh, it's, it's very interesting to see in the different ways in which they do it, the extent to which they engage, or are still a little um, reticent about engaging. I, I think one of the most interesting uh, developments is the way that UEFA, um, the UEFA website covers football with the huge news reach that they have, um, because they, they go as close as they can, if you like, the reporters and journalists who work for them, to getting to the news, um, but, you know, there, there is a, a line uh, over which they cannot cross. There, there are certain words, you know, if, if you're writing, I think, for UEFA or FIFA or something like that, you can't say that one country's national team thrashed another because that's um, undiplomatic. You know, there, there are very, very clever nuances which probably, which the reader won't, won't even notice or pick up on 
if you're professional, yes, you notice it. Indeed, as a student of uh, sport and diplomacy, those are the things that we uh, we tend to focus in on. And just pick up on one thing there. In in your uh, experience, how far have um, has gender been a an issue within sports, both reporting and sports coverage? You talked a lot here about the the male football tournaments that you've covered. Have you covered similar female football tournaments, and how have you found these federations address the you know the women's game as well? Well, that's an interesting question because it's only really in recent years that federations have had to confront dealing with the women's game and being open to diversity in general. It's not just about, you know, women's football. Um, I've covered um, World Under-17 Women's Championships Under-20s. I covered the, uh, the European Women's Championship in the Netherlands last year. Fascinating events. One of the most interesting things is you see very particularly the, if you like, the cultural progression. Countries who are making progress particularly and being very proactive in trying to develop women's football and be open to to the women's game and those countries who frankly are not. I mean, every national association has by FIFA's rules to donate a percentage of their development money to the women's game. There are many, many federations uh, who do not do that, very obviously. And, uh, you, you know, you see this, for example, at the Women's uh, Olympic Tournament in Brazil, in Rio. Um, if you look through the Brazilian team there, I think all the players were registered with foreign clubs. Um, there are a few players who were registered with the Brazilian Confederation because, you know... The Brazilian Confederation, for all the money, all the power, all the name, uh, it's interesting women's football has been basically next to zilch. Okay. In- um, so, but following up, in terms of the media, um, again, different countries have uh, you know, dealt differently, if you like, in embracing women in the media. And, and you know, sport and sports coverage has, I think, probably... Um, British media has probably led the way, although, you know, most uh, probably most women in British media would say it's been very slow and very backwards. I mean, for example, I remember uh, the first time The Guardian, I think it was The Guardian, sent, sent a woman reporter to uh, cover uh, a Premier League or an old First Division match. Um, in the press facilities, there were no women's toilets. You know, so one, one male journalist had to stand guard, you know, while she... Uh, well, she went kind of thing. Um, this has changed. This is changing. But it's changing, you would say, slowly. And really, a lot of countries are, the majority of countries, I'd say, are dragging their feet. Okay. In terms of the um, way that sports clubs and sports men and sports women engage in the sort of practice of diplomacy, coming at it from a uh, sort of diplomatic scholarly perspective, there are certain traits that diplomats um, engage with, nominally around um, communication, representation and negotiation. Do you think there's anything within the sports m- persons and sports clubs um, character that makes them particularly the sort of susceptible or, um, or engage in particular problematizing of diplomatic activity? I think that in a sense there's reticence 
because I think most sports bodies are innately conservative. You know, they all come from uh, a a creation, if you like, that was conservative. Um, They are very, very jealous and protective of their own identities, their own rights, their own ability to govern their own game, run their own game the way they want to. Um, You only had to think back to the the expressions of horror that were unleashed uh, within UEFA and FIFA when the Bosman verdict was initially handed down. You know, I I remember the... uh, the Swedish president of the European Federation at the time, Lennart Johansson, said to me, well, actually, it doesn't really concern us because we are a Swiss body and therefore we're not in the European Union and therefore, um, you know, whatever the the European Commission and European law may say, it, it really doesn't bother us. I mean, it's been revolutionary. Um, and, and to this extent, I think part of the, the issue has been that sport, not only by being conservative has been short-sighted and therefore has not been prepared to move with the time. So every now and again, you have these convulsions. Uh, Bosman is one. Um, there are a number of, um, of cases that have arisen which challenge or threaten to challenge the Court of Arbitration for Sport and its right to uh, you know, be a judge and jury, if you like, of sporting decisions where this falls over in strictly whether it can deal with only sporting matters, how it affects its judgment in terms of doping cases, whether it has any legal jurisdiction really to rule in contractual disputes. Um, You know, so I think that's one to follow. You spent some time in uh, the summer of 2018 in uh, Russia covering the World Cup there. Can you share some of your reflections on actually being there and seeing the tournament firsthand? It was a terrific tournament to cover from a football perspective. It was a fascinating tournament to cover as, uh, as a journalist. I've been to Soviet Union, Russia um, quite a number of times since the early 1970s, so I've seen massive changes in the way the uh, the country presents itself, I went to the Confederations Cup from last year. Well, in yeah, summer of 2017, and from what I saw there, it confirmed my impression that, um, in terms of organisation, the World Cup would be a great success. Um, all the the fuss and the negativity around Russia's hosting of the World Cup was really not to do with its organisational competence. It was to do with a lot of other political issues um, but organisationally it was certainly the best World Cup uh, in my opinion since at least Germany in 2006 so from that point of view it was uh, you know an, an excellent uh, tournament in terms of that narrow um, that narrow sphere and, uh, and set a very high standard for uh, Qatar to follow in 2022. What sort of impact did you think it had on the the average Russian, if I might, or the Russian on the street? Was there a tangible uh, sense of pride in hosting the tournament? Was there something that you know everyday Russians had bought into? Do you think is this part of the sort of public diplomacy that um, the Putin regime would like to have seen ripple out from you know what happened on the football field across the country? Yeah, this is a fascinating story, <clears throat> a fascinating issue because of course Russia is such a vast country you know anything you say is um 
you know, really very, very simplistic. And, uh, and of course, the World Cup itself was only in the Western uh, Russian cities. I mean, from what I saw, I think there was a great difference probably between the impression that was gained from the broadcast media in the West about, which seemed to me, just listening in from uh, Moscow and St. Petersburg and Kazan to be a story of Russia aflame with the World Cup. Russia was not aflame with the World Cup. Um, you know, the media bubbles in the centre of the cities, um, the uh, the fun perhaps that the the Mexican-Peruvian fans brought to uh, to the subways, the metros. Yeah, that, that was real, that was fun. But in terms of the Russian on the street... In the in the Moscow suburbs, in the uh, <clears throat> in the working districts of Kazan, I, I think the World Cup had very little impact. Um, a number of uh, Russian friends that I have, younger Russian friends, said, "Well, we suddenly noticed that uh, a lot of the the poor people or the beggars suddenly are not on the street anymore. Um, you know, we don't see them in our daily lives as we have done. Uh, so, I, you know, I I think, but." You know, you can say, well, uh, any country that is hosting, whether it's a World Cup or an Olympic Games, makes efforts to uh, to present a nice positive face and, and does uh, try to help itself in, uh, in its presentation. I think, you know, you could go out into the uh, Moscow suburbs and you wouldn't have known that the World Cup was taking place. It was as simple as that. You know, the the World Cup was a big event. People were aware of it, but they weren't, from the conversations I had with people young, middle-aged, older, they weren't uh, under any illusion that this was suddenly going to change their lives. Okay. Uh, looking ahead now, so we got the next World Cup in uh, Qatar in 2022, which has already been shrouded in uh, you know a good deal of controversy, um, but perhaps less so the... Tokyo Olympics in 2020, the World Rugby Cup in Japan also. What are the sort of highlights of the next few years from your point of view? I think the run-up to Qatar in 2022 is almost going to dominate everything because of the surrounding issues of uh, actually staging a major sports event in the Middle East particularly at this present time when you have the, the political wrangling between the Qataris and the Saudis next door. Um, so, you know, there is a very, very heavy political game going on already around, uh, around the World Cup and its staging. Um, so that's going to be fascinating. I think in that sense you could say that maybe the, the Tokyo Olympic Games could almost be a little oasis of calm amid quite a, a fevered sports politics environment. And, of course, you know, the, the Japanese, very happily for them, in a sense, have the Rugby World Cup a year in advance. So that's, you know, good promotion for them, a good opportunity of a, a dummy run for their organisational capabilities. I think that also you can see, if, if you look at Qatar and what's going to happen with football, football has grown to the extent that it is bigger than all the other sports put together. And I think this is uh, an area probably where the uh, the Olympic movement is uh, quite heavily concerned that it's, gets, it's being squashed almost, if you like, by football on the one hand and particularly by the, the march of eSports on the other hand. And uh, I think probably eSports and 
its um, assimilation, if you like, into the sporting, the traditional sporting context, I think that's really going to be the most fascinating development of the next five years. Brilliant. Thanks very much. Thank you. Pleasure.